0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Greenfield. Today, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Annie page Cargian, assistant research professor and clinical veterinarian for Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute at Florida Atlantic University. Hi, Dr. Annie. Thanks for being on Aquadox. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm really excited to talk with you. So I was wondering if we could just start with a brief overview of, you know, what inspired you to go into veterinary medicine and aquatic medicine?
1: Well, I wanted to go into veterinary medicine, you know, ever since I was little, I've always loved animals. I chose aquatic animal medicine because mainly I really wanted to work with sea turtles. I got really interested in sea turtle biology and conservation as, a, as an undergrad. Things that live in the ocean are really fascinating. And um, there's this whole like frontier type discovery that I get really excited about. And I'm also allergic to a lot of domestic animals. So that kind of (laughs) solidified um, my choice. And uh, you know, I've I've never looked back. I, I love this field.
0: I really like how you said frontier of discovery because that's exactly why I am interested in pursuing this career path. But since you mentioned sea turtles, Let's dive a bit deeper into that. Your research was in fibropapillomatosis. Can you tell our listeners more about what that is?
1: Yeah, fibropapillomatosis or F. It's an infectious neoplastic disease that is a special thing that sea turtles get. It's most common in green sea turtles, but it's been reported in all sea turtle species. This usually happens in juveniles. It's associated with a herpes virus. So typical of herpes viruses, we usually see those more in juveniles. And in this case, it's a herpes virus that induces neoplasia. And so I find that really fascinating. I'm really interested in cancer-causing viruses.
0: For those who might not be aware of neoplasia, does that just mean cancer-producing?
1: Yeah. So neoplasia just means uncontrolled cell division or cell proliferation. Basically, cancer, but not all neoplasia is metastatic, meaning it can just be local, a local tumor. The reason that I started to get interested in FP is because I describe myself as a giant bleeding heart. (laughs) and if you've ever met a sea turtle with a nasty case of FP, these animals really suffer. They can get it all over their body. They can have it completely covering their eyes. They can get it on their internal organs and it can be extremely debilitating in some cases. In some cases, it's not bad at all. It's just a little tumor that can even go away by itself. But in some cases, it can be terribly debilitating for the animals and they really do suffer for a long time usually and it can eventually lead to their death. And so one of my mentors is Dr. Terry Norton at the Georgia Sea Turtle Center. I've been chasing him around for years and (laughs) I worked with him there and had the opportunity to have some sea turtle FP cases And then the other reason that I was interested in FP is that it's a really good representation of the interaction between the host, the pathogen, and the environment, and at the convergence of those three things, we see disease. I'm really interested in that interaction, and FP is a great example, because what we find is that even though this herpes virus is found in essentially every tumor, we also find lots of turtles that have the herpes virus, but who don't have tumors, and so... We think that there's something in the environment that is causing the herpes virus to induce tumors. And we know this because the herpes virus actually co-evolved with the sea turtle host. Phylogenetics show that, just like most herpes viruses co-evolved with their hosts. And so this herpes virus is millions of years old. However, the first tumors were reported in the 1930s, and the tumors are really only reported in turtles that live in near-shore habitat. And so there probably is some sort of environmental trigger that is causing the tumors to grow.
0: Now, why do you
1: think sea turtles closer to shore are more prone to Fp? Probably two things. So sea turtles migrate back as juveniles to near shore habitats where they live until they reach Sub adult or adult stage. As I said, herpes viruses usually cause more disease in juveniles, so that's part of like the virus biology is that these turtles are in near shore habitats as juveniles and they're probably being affected as juveniles. But also, the coastal habitat, these shallow basins, they're warmer. The turtles are congregating. That's the first time in their life, probably, that they've congregated with other turtles. They are in warmer water, they're more exposed to the sun, and they also are are being exposed to all sorts of environmental changes that they weren't exposed to in the open ocean, such as pollution, contaminants, algal toxins, different food sources. Several studies have linked possibly macroalgae, like invasive macroalgae, as a potential source of the environmental cofactor. But the truth is we don't really know. Hmm. That's really interesting. So when I think of sea
0: turtle papillomatosis I see this turtle with cauliflower-like appendages kind of all over. What are those made up of?
1: Yeah, so the majority of FP tumors are composed of just a proliferating epithelium and a proliferating dermis, and it just forms these papillae, which is where you get the term Papilloma, So a tree-like structure, but if you look at it under a microscope, it really looks like a lot of proliferating skin cells mainly. And then it depends on where the tumors arise from. So if they're arising from the skin, they're mostly composed of proliferating skin. But if they're arising from organ tissues, they're going to be composed of mostly it's the epithelial cells of those organ tissues. So all of our organ tissues are covered by a lining of a different type of skin cells. And those are the things that are going to be composing those organ tumors.
0: So you can see tumors then on the epithelium, so the skin cells on the outside of the turtle, but you can also then have, upon necropsy or something, you could have these tumors on the insides on the epithelium, so the lining on the outside of all the internal organs as well?
1: Yeah, that's correct. I mean, the tumors have been seen on essentially almost every organ. Wow.
0: That's, that's crazy. So if it's everywhere, how do you treat something like that? So
1: the internal tumors is generally considered end stage, stage three type of case. So usually those turtles are euthanized, but generally you'll start to see little clusters of tumors. And then it, in certain cases and unfortunate turtles, it will really spread over time. So the treatment for that, it depends on how severe the disease is. For less severe cases, you can just lock those tumors right off. And the turtle usually does pretty well. And so that's where understanding the extent of the disease in each case becomes really important. And so now there's been a shift towards doing internal imaging, either CT scan or MRI of turtles at intake or shortly after intake to understand whether or not they have internal tumors, in which case they're usually euthanized. Hmm. And then the treatment for the less severe cases or the small clusters of tumors is using a laser to remove those tumors. And it's a really nice way to take them off because the laser cauterizes as it cuts. And you can use different settings for different types of tumors. This disease can present anywhere from flat plaques, like a mole to, you know, the big cauliflower-like tumors you were talking about. And so you can change the settings of the laser depending on what type of tumor you're dealing with.
0: I guess like what, what I found most interesting from what you just said is that despite the fact that it appears metastatic, meaning that it would be spreading all over the body if you just cut off one of the tumors, that can save it. Like it just seems like if it's spreading throughout, it's weird that if you were to just cut it off and cauterize it, you could actually save that animal.
1: Uh, paper that we did came out last year where we looked at tumor regrowth because as you know you rightly pointed out even if you're cutting off the tumor which is the symptom you're not removing the cause which is we think the herpes virus you know herpes is for life it's the same for turtles as it is for humans so that inciting cause is still going to be there so the the main thing is we know that these tumors are probably represents like a nidus of infection or like a focal center of infection in the body and so when you remove the tumor, you're removing a big focus of the infection, and then you want to support the turtle nutritionally, decrease stress. If they have any other problems, like if they got hit by a boat, if they have trauma, um, treat those problems, support the animal with antibiotics, and make sure they're getting adequate nutrition and bring them up nutritionally. And then the hope is that the immune system will take over and allow the turtle to fight off that herpes virus back into latency. But yeah, in our study that came out last year in diseases of aquatic organisms, we did a multi-facility case review of almost 800 cases of FP. And in all the case tumors were removed, 50% of those turtles regroup tumors, either at the site of removal or in a few cases somewhere else. So it is a, you know, a risk that the turtles can grow the tumors back. And often the treatment for that is to remove those tumors as well. The turtles can heal from that procedure within a couple of weeks, usually two to three weeks, their skin will heal over. And so then you can consider removing them again.
0: That's super interesting. And that study sounds really interesting too. I mean, 800 turtles is a is a pretty big sample size. So like that's, that's interesting where we are now. Are there future things that you're thinking about for how to better care for these turtles or what you're hoping to see and continue with your research
1: moving forward? After thinking about this disease for, gosh, it's been about 10 years now and thinking about it a lot and writing about it and reading about it, I've really come to the conclusion that at least in Florida, where I am, the disease is endemic in the turtles, meaning that probably a majority of the population is infected with this virus. And and I've kind of started to shift my research to wild animals to try to get a better understanding of what it is that causes Herpes virus infected turtles to grow tumors. One of my first papers we found that I think it was like 43% of turtles with no tumors in Puerto Rico, a free-ranging juvenile green turtles, were positive for this herpes virus. They didn't have tumors. So what is the difference between a turtle that doesn't grow tumors and one that does? Is it their immunity? Maybe there's some genetic cofactor. And so you know now we're doing these big health assessments of juvenile green turtles, wild juvenile green turtles all over Florida to try to get a better understanding. Um, we're looking at, the, at their immune function, their cell count, their proteins, um, plasma proteins, and then lo- looking for the virus in their skin using PCR and simultaneously looking for antibodies to the virus in their blood. You know, showing that they're exposed. And since herpes viruses don't go away, we know that if they were exposed, that at some level they're probably still infected. And so, really, to me, I've kind of had this shift in my thinking. Now, you know, we understand about rehabbing turtles with FP. I do think it is a worthy, worthwhile thing to do for sure, because some of them do really well and don't regrow the tumors and can be released. But for me, I, I've really moved towards trying to understand what's happening in the environment, what's happening with these wild turtles. Is there anything that we can do? Since In some way, humans have probably led to this disease. And is there anything that we can do to, to mitigate that?
0: Well, it seems like you're making some really great strides in trying to understand how the environment is having an impact on these animals. I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the other work you do with wild marine mammals. And I know you recently published a paper looking at toxic pollutants in stranded dolphins and whales.
1: So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I am the attending veterinarian for the Harbor Branch Marine Mammal Stranding Response Program, and I also manage our marine megafauna necropsy lab that we have at Harbor Branch. And so for that, we have a 72-mile response area of coastline in southeast Florida, and usually it's dolphins and whales, and usually it's the smaller toothed whales, theodontesites. For every animal that dies or is euthanized, we do a complete necropsy. We take samples from every organ, multiple samples. We do, you know, very thorough examination. And then we also have a pretty extensive tissue archives, a tissue bank going back almost 20 years, I think, of all of these dolphins and whales. And one thing I noticed when I first started doing this work is that we turn in, All the tissues for histopathology, we have a pathologist who reads out tissues and sends us this beautiful report about everything that they found and all the different organs. However, even though we have all this information from the necropsy and from the pathology report, All too often, we still don't really understand the cause of death. And so we'll just say, oh, you know, it was emaciated, you know, it died from stranding. In some cases, it'll be like a human interaction. They were entangled or some really sad thing like that. They swallowed a plastic bag. But in a lot of cases, it's kind of like a big question mark. And what I've noticed is that, you know, we get these beautiful pathology reports And then we disregard a lot of that information because it didn't cause the death. So we'll say like there was some liver disease, there was some kidney disease, but it didn't cause the animal to die. And so we usually just kind of tuck it away and don't don't do anything with it. And I started to get interested in contaminants because... I was wondering if maybe we could relate contaminant concentrations to some of these lesions that we tend to kind of ignore because they're sublethal. They're not causing the animal to die, they probably weren't even causing the animal. Any type of discomfort or dysfunction, but I was wondering how those could possibly be attributable to contamination exposure. In these animals, marine mammals are apex predators, and contaminants tend to bioaccumulate and biomagnify within the food web. And so, in a lot of the literature, cetaceans have some of the highest contaminant loads that have been reported. And so I kind of wanted to start looking at that in our cases and use our tissue archive and all of these pathology reports to see if I could put together some type of answer to that question
0: what are those contaminants? Like what are the toxic pollutants that you were looking at?
1: So in our case, we looked at 17 different analytes, but your question is a really good one because the reality is the way that we measure different chemicals in biological samples often is uh, mass spectrometry. So the way that works is that it's looking for an individual compounds. But the reality is that there's probably thousands Of different compounds that these animals are being exposed to as well as the result of like chemical interactions between these compounds in the water and in the animals bodies so possibly even forming new compounds there are pollutants and different chemicals being put into the ocean or running off into the ocean new ones are developed every single year a lot of them we don't even know the names of them or how to detect them And so it's a very complicated thing. I mean, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. And so what we did is um, we chose five chemicals that we thought would be a good representation of what may be in the environment. So we looked at atrazine, which is really commonly used pesticide that causes basically feminization in amphibians. And then we looked at phthalate. It's like a chemical component of plastic that is also an endocrine disruptor. We looked at triclosan, which is an endocrine disruptor that is typically used in personal care products like soaps and um, detergents and things. And then we looked at nonylphenol ethoxylate, which is another chemical contaminant of plastics. We looked at BPA, which you're probably familiar with. It's a very commonly used component of plastics and plasticizers. And then we also chose a species of PCB because a lot of the scientific literature has been focused on PCBs and cetaceans and we wanted to be able to compare. So those are the six things that we chose to look for. Those are the organic contaminants. And then we also looked at different inorganic elements, including zinc, cobalt, iron, lead, mercury, and arsenic, uh, and cadmium. So those are the things that we looked at.
0: And you weren't necessarily doing a comparison, right? Because you weren't comparing the wild animals that came in stranded to animals in managed care facilities. You were more just trying to see what are the baseline levels of these different toxins in these bodies, correct?
1: Yeah, that's correct. And it was really like identifying baseline levels. We also worked with the North Carolina Marine Mammal Stranding Group. So we were able to do some comparisons between locations, so animals that stranded in Florida versus North Carolina. We also did some comparisons between species. The two species that we had the most data for were bottlenose dolphins and cogia whales, so like pygmy sperm whales and dwarf sperm whales. And so we were able to compare concentrations between those two species. And then for the bottlenose dolphins, which we had almost 50 of those cases, we were able to compare males versus females, juveniles versus adults. And we also had four other fetus or mother neonate pairs. Um, And so that was a really cool thing. We were able to compare mothers' concentrations to their fetus Get a better understanding of how these chemicals are being transferred to their offspring. That's super interesting.
0: Did you find that a lot of the fetuses had similar levels to the mothers, or were they pretty different?
1: So it, it depends on the the analyte. So we found that certain things tend to really bioaccumulate in adult animals, particularly in males because they're not having babies. But when The females do have babies. They do offload certain chemicals into their babies. And other studies have shown like there's different routes. There's either gestational exposure and or exposure through drinking milk. So for ours, it was really gestational exposure because these were either fetuses or very young neonates. And there's definitely like patterns that we saw where certain things will stay in the mother and usually the more lipophilic compounds will mobilize and be crossed or kind of dumped into the developing fetus.
0: That's really cool. Are there any other major takeaways from the study? One of the take-homes is
1: that even in certain offshore species that are pelagic, they spend most of their lives out in the open ocean, we found chemicals that are typically associated with runoff from land. So some of these animals are being exposed in the deep ocean to land chemicals that are produced by humans. And some of these chemicals are endocrine disruptors that not only affect marine mammals, but they also affect humans as well. And so a lot of these animals eat fish that humans also like to eat. We think that's how they're being exposed to these chemicals. And so humans should care because the marine mammals are kind of like a a proxy for the things that we're being exposed to as well. And then the other take-home message that kind of stands out for me is that as much as possible, toxicology can be expensive, but as much as possible, we should include toxicology in our post-mortem examinations of wildlife. It should become, you know, a standard part of the examination of the tissues, just like histopathology.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And before I let you go, do you have any advice for our student listeners?
1: One of the strongest lessons that I have learned is that no one can be an expert at everything. And that's why collaborations are so important. And if you are a good collaborator and you have strong connections in your field to other experts in their field, you can work together and really, you know, have a bigger impact. And also it can benefit your work-life balance. If, you know, you're not taking on everything onto yourself, but you are working as more a part of a network of people. And another thing I've learned, the most important things in our lives are not from work, you know, you, you can have things in your work that you're really proud of, and and you could absolutely make a difference as a veterinarian in the lives of people and animals. But the most important things, and I, I think the things that people remember is their connections with other people. And whether it's through their family members, through their children, or through their friends, or through their colleagues, or, you know, all of the above. And your connections with people, I think, is the thing that, that carries you and it can carry you through tough times, such as the one we're going through right now with the terrible pandemic. And so your actual work will never replace that. Work on your personal relationships with the people in your life. Show the people in your life that they're important to you and take the time to create those connections because that is what will become important to you when you look back on your life.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that, and I I couldn't agree more, and I think it is so important.
1: Yeah, you have to take the time to create your own support system. For me, I mean, I'm a mother of two little, beautiful little boys, and that has been the greatest joy of my life. You know, as proud and happy as I am at my career, honestly, being a mother trumps trumps it every time. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's wonderful. Well, Annie, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's really been a lot of fun.
0: And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Aquadox. I'd like to thank Dr. Annie Page Cargian for being on the show this week, as well as thank all of you, our wonderful listeners, for tuning in. As always, check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest Aquadox news. And if you've got an extra minute, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or leave us a comment. It really helps new listeners find the show. I'm Michelle Greenfield. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you next time here on Aquadogs.